Welcome to this podcast from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. Today, Joe Goffman, our Executive Director, and Ari Pesco, the Director of our Electricity Law Initiative, are talking about the recently leaked DOE memo supporting coal and nuclear power. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, Ari. Hey, Joe. Um, I'm glad we're uh, able to do this at relatively short notice, um, because just a couple of days ago, Bloomberg News published a draft memo that one of its reporters apparently got her hands on, laying out the case, I guess, for a potential administrative directive compelling the purchase of coal and nuclear-generated electricity. It's not clear what that memo portends, but it's certainly gotten a lot of attention. This might be a good opportunity to try to figure out what's going on and what it might mean. Yeah, the the leaked memo um, or the leaked document uh, is an addendum to a draft Department of Energy directive. Um, And the addendum purports to justify with facts and legal background uh, the directive's action. Unfortunately, no one has leaked the directive itself. So all that we know about the potential action is in just is sprinkled here and, and there, uh, really just hinted at uh, in the addendum uh, that that was leaked. So um, it's also important to keep in mind that um, the Department of Energy hasn't actually issued this yet, and so we don't know if it ever will. Uh, but it is sort of this most recent step on this long winding path the administration has been on to provide some support for ailing coal and nuclear plants. And so, um, you know, this is now more than a year long process that Rick Perry himself kicked off by ordering uh, his staff to conduct a study. Uh, That study was released back in August. Uh, then, which in the study itself didn't really support the need for any sort of bailout for coal and nuclear units. Then, the de- then the Department of Energy proposed a rule at FERC uh, that would have re- that would have uh, provided uh, special rates for these plants, and that didn't work out. Um, and then First Energy, one of the owners of these of these coal and nuclear plants, uh, requested an emergency action by DOE. DOE didn't grant that; it hasn't done anything on that. And now we see this memo again, is is this just most recent step in this long journey that we're all on. I'm tempted to describe it as a journey to nowhere, but perhaps that's uh, wishful thinking. Um, Let's take a couple of steps back. Within the first 24 hours of the uh, release of this memo by Bloomberg News, a lot of stakeholders and interested parties and the press reacted as if this were an inevitability that would come to fruition in a very short period of time. Since then, reports have been that there is uncertainty as to whether and when this directive, which, as you said, is not part of the memo, will will ever be released. So we may or may not be talking about something that is ultimately real, but it seems as if there's uh, a floor of attention below which this issue is not going to sink. So let's let's look at what we know 
and at what we might uh, expect. And we should, I should also point out that on Friday, the White House press secretary issued a short statement which said the president orders Secretary Perry to do something about these coal and nuclear plants and looks forward to reviewing the secretary's recommendation. So so the, if that statement is to be taken at face value, there is a finish line that's being contemplated. We just don't know how far away it is. Or There are definitely missing steps to that finish line, and we're, at this point we're going to speculate about what, what they might be. Um, you refer to nuclear and coal plants that might be the subject of this directive and are apparently the subject of this draft memo as ailing. You want to give us a little bit more uh, definition to uh, what it means to be an ailing nuclear or coal plant, assume you mean in economic terms. Right. They're struggling financially. Um, we've seen low power prices uh, for the past you know, nearly a decade uh, across the country, and that's due primarily to low natural gas prices. And um, the way that interstate power markets work is that the price, the same price is essentially paid uh, to all generators, um, and that price is set by the most expensive unit needed to uh, meet demand. Uh, and historically, traditionally, that's been the natural gas-fired unit that's uh, called upon uh, uh, to meet demand. And when natural gas prices were really high, that meant high prices for everyone, and that was great for these older coal and nuclear plants. But now with low natural gas prices, a lot of these uh, coal and nuclear plants find themselves, uh, you know, unprofitable. Um, and so um, the argument from this administration is that these coal and nuclear plants provide fuel security to the grid because uh, as opposed to natural gas, which relies on pipeline delivery uh, and sort of doesn't, doesn't store a whole lot of, of, of fuel on site, if any, um, you know, coal and, and nuclear plants have this on-site fuel storage. And they argue, uh, although it's been widely disputed by nearly every independent expert, um, that this fuel security provide some value. It sounds like that if this directive were issued and the various uh, participants in the system found a way to implement it, consumers or customers would end up paying higher prices for electricity than they otherwise than they are now or otherwise would. That that these plants uh, are more expensive and avoidably so than other sources of electricity. Right. I mean, that, that's by definition the outcome of this proceeding. They're going to provide some sort of economic benefit, some sort of subsidy to these plants uh, that they that they that's certainly going to have the effect of raising prices. Um, you know, the earlier version of Perry's bailout proposal, the one that was rejected by FERC back in January. Um, in, envisioned essentially carving these plants out of the market and providing them with a special compensation rate. Um, there were a lot of questions about how that would then interact with the markets themselves and when you would decide when these plants would run. Would they run whenever they wanted to run? Would there be some market operator that would still tell them how they're going to run? So those same questions are still on the table. Nobody knows. Whatever this directive might say, it's not clear how often these plants might run, what the total expense might be, how many, we don't even know right now how many plants are actually going to be subject uh, potentially to 
the secretary's directive. Um, so there's there's still a lot of unknowns, but I think you're still right that that that, that by definition, when you're providing some sort of out of market payment, um, and you're going to potentially be displacing lower cost plants, you're going to be adding costs uh, to consumers. So it sounds like some of the practical steps that would be required to be defined in order to deliver this additional payment to these plants and uh, obtain their electric genera- electricity generation um, haven't been defined in this memo. That's right. And we actually, we don't even know if they're going to be paid for energy or just for capacity, which is the idea that the plant will be available to generate energy, but might not actually generate any. One of the proposals that's hinted at in this leaked memo is uh, what's called a strategic electric generation reserve. Uh, I don't know what that means because it's not explained here. A giant battery. Maybe. Uh, But it's, well, you know... (laughs) Probably not. <laughs> um, it's it's probably going to be paying coal and or nuclear plants or probably just coal plants to just be available. So in other words, they may not actually produce any energy uh, in the regular course of business, but if there were some emergency, they might be called upon. The reason I think that would be coal and not nuclear mm-hmm. is because usually once nuclear plants go offline, they just go offline forever and they're decommissioned and there's a very long highly regulated process that goes along with that. With coal units, it might be simpler to just sort of keep them available without actually running them on a regular basis. But that's just, you know, speculation. speculation. You described the argument that's made in the draft memo, and it sounds very similar to the argument made in the notice of proposed rulemaking that DOE issued at the end of 2017 and uh, FERC rejected earlier this year. Do you see any difference between the arguments made in support of the notice of proposed rulemaking that FERC acted on and rejected and the arguments in this draft? Well, the leaked draft is uh, much longer than the NOPR. Mm -hmm. So that's a difference. There's a lot more words. Um, And uh, DOE has added uh, additional justifications for the action. And the NOPR was really focused on this idea of fuel secure generation Mm -hmm. being a relevant property for the grid in its its own right. And here they add a a layer of national security justification. They basically argue that the, the natural gas pipeline system is subject to physical and cyber attack, and therefore we shouldn't rely on it as a matter of national security. And we need these alternative sources uh, as sort of a, I suppose, a backup in case there ever is some sort of attack. Although they don't, they don't quite connect the dots on all of this, but there's a lot of information in here about the vulnerability of the pipeline system. And then the other big difference is, is the legal justification, which it's being generous to say this, is, this, this addendum includes a, a legal justification, um, but it does cite three different laws passed by Congress um, there's the the Federal Power Act, um, which is what gives FERC authority to regulate uh, wholesale power sales. And in particular, there's a provision that provides the Department of Energy with authority uh, when there's a, an emergency uh, on the grid. And usually that's due to natural disasters or, or some localized event. The second law is uh, the FAST Act, which was passed in 2015. And that has a provision that talks about defense-critical electric 
infrastructure. And you know, the, these are facilities that have some importance for our energy system and for national defense. And DOE has never defined what those facilities are. So that, that's the second piece of law. And the third piece of law is the Defense Production Act, which, is, uh, passed, which was passed by Congress in 1950 and gives the president uh, all sorts of powers relevant to ensuring that the nation is able to prepare itself for national defense and for war. And, you know, citing these three laws essentially implicitly concedes that there is no single law that provides DOE with the authority to do what it wants to do. DOE's argument is that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts here, and that if you add up these provisions of law, it allows them to do what they want to do. They don't really explain that legal argument. They sort of just provide background on each law itself, but never explain how when you add these things up, it allows for you know what's contemplated here, which is two-year contracts for unidentified coal and nuclear power plants, as well as the strategic electric generation reserve. Well, is there is any does the memo make any attempt to explain why these plants would be somehow less susceptible to being disabled or rendered unusable in a national security event um, than other parts of the grid? No, I mean as I, as I mentioned, it focuses on the natural gas pipeline system, and it sort of. I think generally ignores the other vulnerabilities that might be on the grid. Um, and obviously, you know, most outages are caused by the wires, not, not the generating plants. Um, you know, hopefully we'll never have to deal with a cyber physical attack on our natural, you know, natural gas uh, system. We've never had a major attack that this memo you know, contemplates here. Um, but, you know, there, there are certainly other vulnerabilities. It's not clear how having a coal plant online um, is necessarily the answer to cybersecurity issues. Maybe the answer is focusing on cybersecurity, yes. not, not coal plants. Yes, that's your description of the national security argument really begs the question about what, what it is that really creates uh, proof against the effects of a cyber attack. And it doesn't sound like the memo explains why coal or nuclear plants are distinctively capable of either withstanding such attacks or functioning in the wake of such attacks if other parts of the grid are disabled. Mm-hmm. It also sounds as if, the in, though the memo cites these three statutory authorities, there's no discussion of the, the facts at hand or the hypothetical facts at hand um, or the remedy and how, on a granular level, any or all of that relates to the actual statutes. Is that, is that a fair criticism? Yeah, I, I think like the NOPER, there's a failure to connect all the facts that are in the document in a, in a cohesive way and then to connect them back to the law. So, I, I, you know, I, th- I think you know, the, 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 the sort of the final justification that DOE offers, really the bottom line of all this, is that DOE is conducting a two-year study to identify defense-critical electric infrastructure. That's, you know, this term that's in the the FAST Act in 2015. Um, And they say, in the meantime, we need to take preventive measures just in case any of these plants end up being defense-critical infrastructure. Um, And so so this is all really to 
it's an excuse to do something they've been trying to do for the past 15 months or so, which is provide this bailout for these uneconomic plants. And this is their latest justification for us is we need two years to do this study. And therefore, we need to throw these this as yet to be defined set of plants, other than the fact that they have the characteristics of being fueled by coal and nuclear energy. Um, we, have to, we have to throw them a lifeline for a couple of years while we study the problem. And in case some of these plants turn out to be part of the remedy at the end of our study, we want to make sure they're still operating. Is there a, a, a path that you can imagine? And I use the word imagine because it sounds like there's not enough there in the memo to answer these kinds of questions. But is there a path that you can imagine whereby the directive, after being fully fleshed out and issued, would deliver the the money to the plants, create the reserve, the electricity, the strategic electricity reserve, and at the same time not be subject to any kind of challenge or review by uh, by a court or the courts or some or or even FERC. No, yeah, I think there's going to be multiple ways of challenging this. One is that DOE's order itself would be subject to a court challenge. So. Usually when DOE issues an emergency order under the Federal Power Act authority that it has, which again is usually for natural disasters, uh, other local reliability issues, if someone is dissatisfied with that emergency order, they ask for, they're, excuse me, they ask DOE for rehearing, and then once DOE denies that, you then go to federal court. So that, that's one way a challenge here would play out, presumably. The other issue is that any contracts that DOE orders are ultimately going to be wholesale power contracts. It's really, I think, impossible to get around that. And therefore, FERC has jurisdiction over the rates and terms of those contracts. Now, you could avoid FERC review in the first instance by using existing tariffs that are already already on the book. So for example, the regional markets already have rates in place for emergencies. Mm -hmm. And so you might utilize those emergency rates but that would not prevent uh, opponents of this plan from then filing a complaint at FERC and arguing that those rates are unjust and unreasonable. Um, that's sort of the key standard that FERC has to ensure that it's upheld with all, all of the contracts under its authority. So you'd have one challenge happening at federal court, and separately, you could have complaints at FERC about each contract arguing that the, the rate is unjust and unreasonable. So that that's and then separately, you could also have more action at FERC, arguing that these contracts are disrupting the larger market, and therefore uh, other market rules are now uh, going to be subjected to challenge as well. Well, thank you very much, Ari, for for laying this all out. It sounds like some of the more uh, salient questions that you and others have identified remain to be answered, but if as has occurred in the last several days, various pieces of information or informed speculation comes out, we'll at least have uh, a basis of knowing what the product here might be.